Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and this one is going to be fun. You know, there are a certain number of athletes that are tied in our minds and will remain so forever to the 1970s. And my guest today certainly falls into that category, at least in my mind, I consider him a 1970s icon. Dan Epstein, the great author who knows a little something about 1970s baseball and pop culture. He is the author of Big Hair and Plastic Grass, after all, probably the best book that's ever been written about 1970s baseball. You know, Dan is a friend, and he was on one of the very first episodes of this podcast a couple of years ago, and I asked him at the end of the podcast for his Mount Rushmore of 1970s baseball players, and the man that we're about to speak with earned one of those coveted spots. And coming from Mr. Epstein, uh, you know that it's an accurate summation. My guest has been on my list of most wanted people to have on this show since day one. And today, we finally got him. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, one of the iconic names in 1970s baseball could not possibly be more excited to have the spaceman, Bill Lee himself, on the podcast today. Bill, it's been a long time coming to have you on this podcast. How are you doing, my friend? Well, sitting in Craftsbury, Vermont, it's 72 degrees, light wind out of the north, out of Canada, low humidity. Uh, it's been hot summer, and this is one of the reprieves, I call it. Yeah, it's uh, can't be a more beautiful day in northern Vermont. Well, it sounds pretty good. 72 degrees is uh, made-to-order weather right there. Oh, it's unbelievable. The only bad thing is there's a hint of fall, the poplar leaves. Uh, we had a stressed-out, kind of a dry spring and early summer, and uh, we're low on water. But, uh, you know, that's one thing about Vermont. It's uh, We don't really care because there's no one up here and no one really... Uh, no one to complain to. <laughs> well, Bill, tell me, we, we got an exciting thing coming up in, in Ottawa on September the 3rd, Expos Day. So we, we got a, yourself and a number of former uh, Expo stars are going to be there. There's going to be a game. Uh, tell me about this, because it sounds like it's going to be fantastic for any baseball fan, and particularly if you're an Expos fan. Yes. We've been trying to get the Expos back. We've been trying to get a Florida team up here back in Montreal after Bud Selig took away our ball club. And uh, there are, it makes perfect sense to have an American League East team here because you'll play 16 games with Toronto right up and down the 401. And there would be uh, big interest. And, and the Red Sox fans have a small venue and they need a place to go on the road and they'll take their vacations to Canada. And then you got the Yankee fans who will advertise the same way. There's a train that goes right to Montreal, straight up the gut, and uh, do that through uh, Via Rail and through uh, Amtrak. It makes perfect economic sense to have an American League East team in Montreal and call them the Expos. 
Well, now now I've got to tell a little bit of a humorous story because as as we were talking about before we started taping this, last summer you went down to Florida to to St. Petersburg and you you threw out the first pitch at a Rays game. They were having a 1970s throwback theme and you know, who's more perfect for 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 that job than than bringing in Bill Lee. And so you came down and they 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 gave you a a, a Rays well, I guess it's a faux-back jersey since the, the Rays didn't exist then. But they gave you that. But you were wearing your Expos cap. And I was talking to one of the guys in the Rays organization afterwards. And they were getting all their video footage of you and photos of you. And the guy says afterwards, he says, gosh, he says, he was. I wish he wasn't wearing that Expos cap. He's like, I'm not sure I can use this. Because they're you know they're a little sensitive about the fact that you know they they can't draw flies down there, and it has been speculated as as you said a Florida team that the Rays might be the natural fit to uh, become the uh, Mach two version of the Montreal Expos. Why wouldn't you want to get out of Tampa, Florida, in the heat of the summer and take a vacation? He's still the owner. He just happens to go to a more pristine cooler spot to spend his summers he could always go back to tampa bay and take his canadian money and change it for probably 25 percent less but the funny thing is he'll actually make more money because he'll draw fans so it's in there they shouldn't be afraid of it they should embrace it and the funny thing is most of those people we were talking to were from new england that ran that organization and they knew i was right so bill tell me the rumor that i'm hearing and you can confirm this or, or, or deny it here, but the rumor that I've heard for this event on September the 3rd is that you might actually take the mound and, and pitch a little bit. What's going on with that? Well, in 61, I played against UCLA freshmen in the Midnight Sun game up in Alaska at 61 years of age. So I beat Satchel Page by two years that day, and I won the ball game, and I became the winningest, ex- or winningest panner pitcher and then in 63, Miles Wolf's son, who happens to be running the event in Ottawa, had the Brockton Rocks, which were in the Can-American League. And I pitched for Brockton against Rich Gedman's team uh, from Worcester, and I beat them. And then they heard about it on the West Coast, and they had an independent team in San Rafael, my hometown. And I went out there, and I pitched nine at the age of 65. And then at 67, I got traded. 68, I played all eight, nine positions for the Pacifics. Then in 60, then at the age of 67, I got traded to Sonoma, and I won that ball game. So when I go to the Hill, I don't go there just as a, you know, just as an appearance. I go to win. The problem is I hurt my arm on the Ponderé River up in, in uh, on the British Columbia line in Idaho, skipping stones with my grandsons last summer and I dislocated my left shoulder. Well, I'm coming back. My arm is getting much better, but it's not my arm. It's a different arm. So it's almost like I have to retrain it to uh, do it. And I can't throw as hard as I used to, which I could keep hitters honest. Uh, I still have my good junk. I have pretty good control, but it's I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy that can win a ball game. And I don't want to go out there and hurt a team no matter what team it is, by going out with diminished uh, skills. So I'm going to play first base. Oil can's going to start. And then if things happen, which I think are going to happen, the other team's going to get ahead, 
Then I'm going to come up and I'll, I'll mop up and finish the ball game. I'll make an appearance, but it won't be the appearance that I want, and it's not the appearance that the fans want. You know, I, I'm brutally honest. That's my problem and why I have trouble with general managers. <laughs> I see the truth, I tell the truth, and they don't want the truth. They can't. It's like it's like uh, they can't handle the truth. You know, I'm Jack Nicholson. You were Nicholson before Nicholson. I was Nicholson before Nicholson when he made the Indian cry, when he, he had the lobotomy at the end of, uh, you know, uh, the first Ken Kesey one, uh, the uh, flu over the cuckoo's nest. So I, you know, I embraced Nicholson when I saw him because I am Jack Nicholson. Well, I'll tell you what, it still sounds pretty good. You got Oil Cam Boyd on the hill, Bill Lee at first base. And possibly Bill Lee coming in to mop up. I I can't think of a better way to uh, spend an afternoon. All profits uh, for this event are going to be donated to the Montreal Children's Hospital Foundation and the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. So uh, it's just a win across the board. And I I know I certainly wish that I could be there. So anybody uh, near the Ottawa area or even if you want to make a road trip or fly in, uh, that's coming up September the 3rd. Now, Bill, I want to go back. There's so much to discuss with your career, so I'm going to have to just handpick uh, some of my favorite topics. I, you know, and I'll tell you uh, when I, when I was a young man, uh, probably of about oh, I'm going to say 13 or 14, I read the wrong stuff, and uh, I don't know. I think it warped me, but it, it, probably in a good way, uh, mostly. But that that was uh, one of the best books, still to this day, probably one of my three or four favorite. Uh, the b- baseball books that I've ever read. I put it right up there with Ball Four by Jim Bouton and, and you know classics uh, like that. But it, it, as, as I look at your career, you know you uh, are a college man, uh, unlike a lot of guys in baseball, and it, you know went to USC, won a national championship there, and uh, by the time that you got into pro baseball, I mean you were an educated guy. I mean coming into the major leagues. In 1969, drafted in 68, up in the big leagues to stay in 1969, uh, that particular time in our nation's history, and being a a college man and an opinionated man, um, what was that experience like for you with everything that was going on in the world at that time? Wow. That is a great question, and it goes what Ken Burns said. Why did Ken Burns use me as the end of inning eight and the beginning of inning, inning nine and bring me in with uh, trucking by the Grateful Dead. You know, it's because it was a change of time. 69 was a pivotal year in our in our nation's history, and uh, I kind of came in with it, you know, and uh, basically things don't appear what they exactly are, and I was exactly like uh, Buffalo Springfield. There's something happening here, and it ain't exactly clear. You know, there's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. You know, you got to stop children here that, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable that Ken Burns saw it, I saw it, and uh, the people that were in power did not see it. And that's why we lost the Vietnam War. And that's why we went into Iraq. And people don't realize that baseball is the conscience of America. The French philosopher, I forget what he was, he says, you want to understand baseball, or America, you better understand baseball. And I think that's why they use me, and they continue to use me, and why you're talking to me right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that 
in that era, baseball was our society was changing, and and baseball was beginning to change in in many ways as well. Maybe in 1969 we weren't fully seeing it yet, but by the early 1970s, you know, long hair and mustaches and all of this stuff, and people starting to speak more freely. Um, uh, about what's going on, uh, not just in baseball, but what's going on in the in the world itself. What, what was that transition to professional athletics like for you? What were your first impressions of the Red Sox organization when you got into pro ball? Wow, I came in in a three piece suit. I'm Irish Catholic. I drink a lot. All I had to do was keep my mouth shut, and I go three out of four ain't bad. <laughs> and the funny thing is, you think of uh, Charles Finley, he used that long hair and the, the characterizations for his championship teams of 72, 73, 74. You know, and the thing about baseball, baseball is honesty. You're out there by yourself. You're 60 feet, 6 inches from your opponent. And you are telling all. You're winding up. You're, if you telegraph your changeup and hang it, they hit it. If you throw it good and deceive them, you get them out. And it is uh, it is the most honest game there because there is no clock involved. And everybody watches the game because you can say at the end of the game, i never seen that before. And I think that is why we continue to be amazed by baseball, but why we're being over-specialized in how things have changed and why they're tampering with the game that is true honesty, and now it's becoming, you know, more of a uh, corporate type thing. The players get too much money, the advertisers and everything, and the games go on too long. They're 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 draining the the temperament of the fan by, you know, doing all this extra stuff when it's the game that's important. Stupid, it's that type of thing. So when you came up, they they put you in the bullpen primarily. You you, you made a few sure, spot sure. spot Everybody starts. Started out there. Yeah. Now I, I want to ask you this: as a pitcher, what is the difference mentality wise between working out of the bullpen and knowing that you're going to get the ball every every fourth or fifth day, as the case may have been? It's tough being in the bullpen because you're a young prospect and you're out there with all these suspects that are drinking and smoking and they're in the bullpen because they can't get people out. So you get bad habits, <laughs> more or less. But then again, you know, I was dubbed as a as a pitcher, not a thrower. I didn't throw hard. I didn't impress radar guns. You know, when I came out of Little League, I was a four-pitch pitcher. The other day I did a clinic for the yard goats down in Hartford, double-A, Colorado Rockies. And I had all these kids in there, young and old and fathers and everybody, and I'm telling them, how many of you kids were told not to throw a curveball? It's going to hurt your arm. And they, most of them raised their arm. I said, okay, today we're going to learn how to throw the curveball. <laughs> and that's how I am. You know, the curveball doesn't hurt your arm. Trying to make a fastball break hurts your arm. So if you can get the curveball grip and the right the right aptitude as far as going over the barrel and pulling down the window shade, you're not going to hurt your arm. You know, I never hurt my arm on a curveball. What do you make of the way that we've seen such a huge change? And I know that it's been a slow evolution going back probably 30 or 40 years now incrementally. But particularly in the past 5, 10, 15 years, the complete game is truly an endangered species 
now. And yet, when I look at the disabled list, there's pitchers everywhere littered with uh, arm injuries, elbow injuries, guys going down with Tommy John surgery all the time. I'm not sure that I'm seeing the correlation between the way that these starting pitchers are being asked to go five and six innings and and better health from them. Is is the way that teams are approaching uh, the, their investments kind of broken, Bill? Yes, it is. They approach it from throwing, not pitching. They approach it from academics and statistics instead of being a complete pitcher and a ball player. They do not, the main problem with pitching is they do not decelerate properly. They've taught them to pick up their foot, on the back foot, come down the hill hard, throw hard, and, de- and we'll worry about deceleration later. In the old days, Tom Seaver never hurt his arm. Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, we were all drop-and-drive pitchers, you know. And the only guys that hurt their arms were kind of Koufax extended. He came down, and he, he his elbow was gone. He used a tube of capsicum every day. You know, back in the old days, we used counter inter, uh, counter uh, uh, what do you call this? Counter irritants like uh, Parker Davis uh, capsicum on our arms. So what we do is make our arms hurt, so we wouldn't feel the pain inside. You know, and nowadays. They have got it all back asswork, and that's what's wrong with baseball. Over-specialization, academics, and advertising, and Halliburton's. Ball players hurt their arms because they're carrying around way too much cash in their pitching arm. All right, Bill. Let's go back to 73 when you moved into the rotation and really announced your arrival as one of the finest pitchers in baseball. 73, you go 17 and 11, 275 ERA, you make the all-star team. What was that experience like getting your your chance, so to speak, to go out there and show what you could do and excelling at a high level? That's a pretty amazing metaphor because I went to that game, had to ride in a cab with Reggie Jackson, which really probably ruined my career having to listen to him talk about himself all the way out there. <laughs> And then I get to the meeting, and Dick Williams goes, Isn't there, is there anybody on this staff, pitchers, that's not 100% positive he can get all these National League hitters out? And I look around, and no one's got their arms up, and I raise my arm. <laughs> and he goes, Bill, wash your arm up. I go, because my father said only fools are positive. And I didn't get in the game, and I never made the All-Star game again. <laughs> But you were the only honest guy in the entire locker room, I think. Exactly. <laughs> Demosthenes was saying, I'm looking for an honest person, and I was that honest person on that day. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like walking in there and being surrounded by like all, all the guys that were the cream of the crop? I mean, did you, did you feel... I, was, I belonged. I yeah. belonged. I was that good. If I don't get my arm broken by Nettles in 76, get dumped on my shoulder... I win 17 games for the rest of my life, and I'm sitting next to Warren Spahn in the Hall of Fame. All right, now, now I'm going to get to that, because I have I know you have, through the years, you've had just an opinion or two about the New York Yankees organization. So I want to I get to that and give you an opportunity, you know, if you, if you want to get something off your chest. But I, I also want to ask you about some, something else that happened in 1973, which is the introduction of the designated hitter 
in your league. Um, taking the bat out of your hands and, and right at the point in time when you were going to get the opportunity to bat three or four times. Oh, my God. It killed me. Broke my heart. Here we are 45 years on, and the, the DH is still there, and, and the talk now, to the extent that you hear it, is that probably the National League is on the clock, and, and eventually this thing is going to be completely universal. Uh, what do you think the DH did or did not do for baseball, and four decades into this experiment, as they called it at the time, what are your thoughts on the designated hitter? with good intentions it was created by Charles Finley it had nothing to do with increasing and Marvin Miller would back me up and I'll tell you it had nothing to do with increasing offense what it had to do was limiting the number of substitute players relief pitchers so they could lower the roster from 25 to 23 so they would have less salaries less pensions and that profit margin would go right into the owners pockets that's all that it was about. Marvin was right. Dick Moss was right. I was right. And the fact that the designated hitter over-specializes, it forces to take the game out of the manager's hands. You don't get butting. You don't get substitution. You don't get the double switch. You don't get any thinking, you know? And that's what's wrong with baseball. Over-specialization breeds extinction. Buckminster Fuller, first chapter of Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth, written in 1969. Look it up. Now, let me ask you, what do we do? Because I agree with you, over-specialization is just this parade of sort of nameless, faceless, 97-mile-an-hour throwing relief pitchers who are basically called in there to just air it out for 15 or 20 pitches and then go take a seat, and then they got another guy uh, coming in right behind him. Is there any way that this can be rolled back, or are we in a situ- situation where we're going to look at baseball 20 years from now and and think that you know that this was less specialized than it's going to be in the future? What what, what do we do at this point, or is the or is the genie out of the bottle? Genie's out of the bottle, and we're killing the game not on the professional level. We're killing it at all other levels. You know, you're not getting as many athletes up there. You've got over-specialized teams. You don't see anybody. And look at what kids are doing now. Because of what they did with baseball and what they've done with the electronics and the electron, you've got kids playing video games, watching other people play video games, and paying for it. And that is the sin that's brought on our society. And what's going to kill our society is that I see it in my grandchildren. I see it all over. You know, no one's paying attention to the game. They're paying attention to their own ego and taking selfies and everything else. That's what's wrong with America. Bill, I'm going to have to talk to you about the 75 World Series. I'm sure that you have commented on this uh, endlessly and if you never talked about it again uh, probably you've, you've, you've had more than enough to say because people demand uh, the answers from you but that 75 World Series considered by many to be the greatest World Series of, of all time probably the most talked about World Series of the of the last 50 years I, I would say it's fair to say and maybe the most talked about World Series of them all 
Um, you obviously had a large role in that. You started game two, you started game seven, you pitched well in, in both of those games. Um, so close. You know, I interviewed Fred Lynn uh, for a book that I'm working on a couple of years ago, and, and Fred Lynn told me that he felt that if Jim Rice had played in that World Series, you guys would have won it in six games. Easily. Easily. He's exactly right. And the other thing is, we should never have played game seven. I should have won game two. They should have taken me out in the eighth or ninth inning after the rain delay and brought in Roger Moret, who was fresh and threw hard and threw strikes. And I'm pretty sure we would have won game two, two to one. And then when Fisk hit the home run, that would have been the world championship home run. And it would still have been just as good a World Series. In 1962, the Dodgers had to play the Giants in a playoff game. And there was a coach for Walter Alston named Leo DeRocher. Harvey Keene came up to pitch hit. And DeRocher moved the second baseman, a rookie, away from second base. Keene hit a double play ball. They don't turn the double play. McCovey hits the three-run homer. The Giants win. In 1975 in the World Series, Don Zimmer did the same thing to Denny Doyle. He moved him away from second base, who happened to be a Dodger and a coach for Daryl Johnson, our manager, and we do not turn the double play. I throw the two-run homer to Perez, and we lose the ball game. I had a 3-2 lead when I came out. But all that is academic. If Rice is healthy, we don't play game seven. Bill, take me back to game three, tenth inning, the Ed Armbrister, Carlton Fisk, no interference call by, by Larry Barnett. How much call in baseball. How, did, did that change the trajectory of, of the series, in your opinion? Oh, for sure. It affected it, too. Everything was stacked against us. He interfered. Arm Brewster interfered. He caught Fist's elbow. elbow he, he threw the ball. He got in a position where he couldn't get his foot down. He threw the ball into center field. You know, Rose goes to third, and it's all over. And we lose the ball game. game you know, we should have won game two. You know, we should have been in better position to win that ball game. You know, then we win it in five. We don't win it in six. We win it in five. Now, a lot of people forget there were three rainouts in Boston in that series when you guys were coming coming back from Cincinnati. What do you do during the World Series when there you are on the biggest stage and I'm sure everybody's hyped to play these games, and then you've got this weather come in, and three games in a row washed out. What do you do? Play cards? We did. And my father, we went out and ate, and we just paced ourselves, and they gave the game to Tiant instead of me. They should have given it to me. This caused the life and death of a guy, a, a fisherman from a chiest name named Ben Benson. Ben Benson had come in. He waited around with a load of swordfish on his boat, the swordfish went bad, and he lost his job and thereby had a premature death. And uh, it's amazing how I learn all this stuff. It's amazing. And I could write a whole story about Ben Benson. I met him in the Gila wilderness when I was hiking back to Geronimo's area where he used to recuperate from wounds. And, uh, you know, I run into this guy, and he starts yelling and screaming, You cost me my job! I go, I didn't cost you your job. The rain cost you your job and your, and your inability to realize that fish spoils. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
you know what you're what you're alluding to the the seventy five World Series. I, you know, I have written in my notes here. It's it, you guys lost the series, but really you're more famous and celebrated that seventy five Red Sox team than probably the vast majority of of teams through the years who actually won the World Series. It's almost as though that series kind of transcended. Uh, winning and losing, and our our normal expectations uh, in that regard. I mean, the the Fisk home run, for instance, in Game Six, that's the iconic moment of the series. And I can't yes, think I can't think of very many World Series. Maybe this is the only World Series where the iconic moment, if you want to crystallize it down to one play or one at bat, it's it's embodied by the team that did not win the series. Um, Tell me your memories of the Fisk homer, because that is in Boston baseball history, right there at the right there at the top, if not if not the very top. Unbelievable! There's so many things about that. Pat Darcy, George Kimball named his son Darcy after Darcy gave up that home run, you know, and the ball Fisk hits it a low fastball and it hits the 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 left field uh, foul pole up there high, and it bounces back, and Foster catches it behind his back with one hand. (laughs) And then he takes that ball, and 20 years later, he pays his income tax debt to the state of Connecticut with that ball. Is that amazing? That's pretty incredible. It is. You You look at things, and when you dissect them, you go, it's almost like you you can't write this stuff. It's amazing that the truth is so much better than fiction. Bill, game seven, and you know people always want to ask you about the about the Perez homer. You guys are up three nothing in the six. You've got uh, a man on, two outs, and you throw the slow curve to Perez, and and Perez puts it over the over the monster. Yeah, and I know that. I should have not thrown that pitch because I didn't have to throw that pitch if we turned the double play. And the funny thing is, when you're upset, and as a pitcher, I was upset we didn't turn the double play, you come out as a pitching coach and you settle me down before I make the mistake, not after. A lot of people forget, though. You guys still had the lead after that home run. and Yes, we did. And then I got the blister and I bled on the ball and I walked someone... And I remember I threw a 3-2. I just couldn't. The, my thumb was had blood on it, and I just couldn't get the ball down. I should have come out before I walked that hitter. You know, it was my, you know, I just thought, here's the, here's the amazing thing. In 1978, we lose on Bucky Dent's home run. I don't get to pitch for 10, or I'm 10 and 10. I don't pitch again. I go up, and I got Yvonne Boulanger. I'm pitching in my second game in Montreal, and I get the same blister, and I start bleeding, and I tell him i got to come out of the game. He goes, no, no, Bill. He says, watch this. And he goes in, and he gets a sodium or silver iodine stick, dips it in water, rubs my thumb, cauterizes my thumb, and all of a sudden now I have a better breaking ball, and I throw the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, and I win the ball game, and I win 16 games for the Expos. If I had had Yvonne Belanger... Instead of Buddy LaRue, a different Frenchman, I win that ball game. Let me ask you just in general terms. There's not a lot of people on on this earth that know what it's like to start a game seven of a World Series. 
and right. and you you are in that select club. What's it like mentally as you are preparing to do your job on that stage? As opposed to a regular season game, or or opposed even to pitching a game too. I mean, when it's an elimination game, the championship of Major League Baseball, what goes through your mind? Not much. Don't think, Tiger. You hurt the ball club, or pry this ball out of my cold dead hand. You know, it's that's what I did. And at the age of 69, I come back to Vermont, and we make it as the fifth seed for the Vermont State Championship. And I have three playoff games, and the reason, and I end up going 11 in the first elimination game. I go nine in the second, strike out the best hitter in the league to win the game, and then I go 12 in the championship game against a guy who struck out 22 of us. And I hit a 12th inning double to win the ball game. That's what it means that you're a ball player. And uh, I look at my age of 69 as my greatest season, not 75. How about that? Now, I I want to talk to you about the Yankees. Now, through the years, you you, you had your share of dust ups uh, with the uh, with the pinstripes. Seventy-three, uh, there was a, 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 a brawl on the field, and the, and the John the, Curtis, uh, Gene Michaels, Carlton Fisk, and uh, I think it was the the catcher too, Munson. And the and the quote was that's attributed to you is that the, the Yankees look like a bunch of hookers swinging their purses out there. <laughs> yeah, because Michaels, they were all scratching each other. It looked like a cat fight. That wasn't. That wasn't nearly like the one I got into in 76, where I got my ass kicked twice. And to this day, I carry Greg Nettles' baseball card in the, the wallet against the right cheek of my ass, where the <laughs> smell and the view do not improve for him. Well, allegedly, Nettles re- remembered that comment, which was, at least the legend has it, that that may have been the reason that he targeted you in, in 76. when uh, They all targeted me. If you look at that video, it was assault. They, in fact, I know because the month before I got Billy Martin fired from the Texas Rangers, and then Martin went back after Verdon got fired and took over the job. And his job, and he said it, is to kill Bill Lee. And I heard about this from uh, Johnny Pesky, and they had a vendetta out on me for the entire rest of my career. I was a marked man. Tell tell me tell me about Martin getting getting fired in, in Texas and your role in that. It was uh, Fisk was bad. Fisk was catching and uh, the human rain delay uh, played for Cleveland. He used to have a, a thumb guard and everything. <laughs> Hargrove, you know that huh? Hargrove, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hargrove was hitting, and that's when they were going to instill the twenty second clock on that series in Texas. So I watched the clock, and I counted it down, and when it hit 20 seconds, nothing happened. I slammed my bat on the front step of the visiting dugout, and I went, strike one. The umpire stood up. Hargrove got out of the batter's box. Fist fidgeted around. They did it all over again, and I went, strike two. And Martin went nuts in the opposing uh, dugout and started hanging on the girders there, swinging around and rubbing his arm like he was a orangutan. And uh, Colburn fired him the next day. You can look it up. 
Let's jump ahead to 78. Now, historic, and that's in 78, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm 47 years old, and the summer of 78 was, I was, well, I turned seven that year, and that was the year that I fell in love with baseball. So the first real pennant race that I remember is the Yankees making that comeback from 14 games behind you guys, I believe on July the 19th, they were 14 back, came all the way back past you guys, you guys caught them, and then you wound up in the in the playoff game for the AL East championship. What are your memories of that year? Because you had your own problems, uh, certainly, with, with Don Zimmer. So if you could kind of go into, because that's one of the things I remember the most from reading the wrong stuff, was you going into the details of uh, how you and, and Don Zimmer butted heads, and you certainly weren't alone in that um, among your teammates. What was it like playing for, for Zimmer, and what are your memories of sort of that 1978 season getting away from the ball club? Well, I was the last of the Buffalo heads. That was uh, Willoughby, Wise, Carbo, and Jenkins. And I was the last, and I was the last one that Zimmer got rid of on December 7th, 1978, Pearl Harbor Day. I was traded to Montreal. But as Al Jackson, I went to him on that last day on the playoff game, and I said, my arm is perfectly healthy. I had worked hard every day. Gary Allenson will back that up, my catcher. He said, you threw every day, you had pinpoint control. You could have won that ball game, Bill. And I said, I'm, and Al Jackson said, you'll never get in that ball game. And I said, well, the wind is blowing in. And I remember Jackson hit a ball to left field that would have been a home runner off the wall that would have put them up. And the wind knocked it down, and caught it. And I told Al Jackson, I said, in the fifth or sixth inning, it's going to warm up. The wind's going to change, and there's going to be an offshore breeze off the ocean, and the wind, the ball's going to carry to left field. And that's when Dan hit the home run. And I did not get in that ball game, and we lost that ball game because I did not pitch in that ball game. And that's the summation of the season. But that 1978 season, which is 40 years this year, right? Indeed. Indeed. Yes, sir. I could write a whole book on that season, on how they mistreated me, how Zimmer put me in his doghouse, how I was 10-6, and six, lost four tough games, became 10-10, ten and 10 and was benched out in Seattle. I remember the day I'm sitting with Drago when he came to me and told me I wouldn't pitch again, and he was right. I pitched in the Massacre, and in the Boston Massacre, I threw nine and two-thirds innings. I gave up one run, a home run to Pinella in relief. And if you had taken those nine in the third innings and put them in one ball game, Bucky Dent never comes to the plate. You can look that up, too. It's amazing. I, I'm The problem with me is I'm a steel trap. My memory is always right. Most people's memories are a little distorted, but mine's about 99% right. And that's why management hates me, because I know where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> The, on the on the Bucky Dent home run, from your vantage point, did you think it was going to get out off the bat? Yes, I was sitting out in the bullpen. I'm telling you, here's what happened. He was throwing pretty good, but I knew he was going to get tired because he threw nine innings about three or four days earlier. I knew Torres had he was going to go out with all guts and glory, 
but I knew you had to get him out of there in the fifth or sixth inning. And I, I just know, I know biomechanics, I know physiology of exercise, I know the fact when you're, I know the day, I can watch a pitcher, and people go, Bill, how do you know this is going to happen? I said, I've seen it all, you know, and I know when to get a guy out of a ball game. And Torrey's had to come out of that ball game. I had to come in. I throw three sinkers to Dent. He hits a weak ground ball to short, and we win that ball game. Before I move on to Montreal, because you've you've referenced the the trade that happened after the '78 season, and I want to get into your time with the Expos, but I I, I want to ask you, talking about the Yankees, what what was your opinion of Steinbrenner? Not much. I thought he was an egomaniac. Uh, I thought his his father was a brilliant man who had the shipping business and gave all his money to MIT. And I thought he was, he's a precursor to Donald Trump. And I was right on all of it, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame. It's, it's, I know physics. I know how to throw a ground ball. Steinbrenner, he knows economics. He was smart. He bought it cheap. He got the TV rights. He was a brilliant, brilliant man economically, but that doesn't mean he's good for baseball. One more thing out of your time in Boston. That's where you picked up the, the nickname Spaceman. Uh, could you kind of tell my listeners how how you picked that nickname up and, and how it stuck with you all these years? Well, it's a good nickname. The guy who nicknamed me died on Thursday, John Kennedy. John Kennedy, the little red-ass third baseman, super sub for us, who happened to be born on the same day as John Kennedy. So I used to tell him that John Kennedy named me the spaceman, and everybody thinks it's the president. <laughs> but no, it's John Edward Kennedy, who just passed away. And uh, just a terrific hustler, hardworking, nasty little infielder. You know, a typical Billy Martin, red ass, uh, Rick Burleson, red ass. Uh, you know, all of them tend to be those little... Uh, you know, Ty Cobb personalities. Even though Ty Cobb played left field, and, and John Kennedy, one of the uh, one of the original Seattle pilots. So, yes. yeah, I pitched against him in Seattle, and that's an amazing thing because you know John Kennedy. He had made a date with a divorcee in Baltimore the day I came in in relief of Louis Tiant in the first inning. Tiant didn't get a guy out. I come in, I get a ground ball double play, I strike out the pitcher or the number eight hitter, I can't remember. I end up pitching eight and two-thirds innings of relief. I get a fake bunt, double down the left field line past Brooks Robinson, drive in the winning run, and, you know, and uh, we land on the moon. And uh, Kennedy couldn't get to his locker. He was right next to mine, H-I-J-K-L. Kennedy, Lee, he couldn't get to his locker because the press was around me so much. I started saying that we didn't land on the moon, that it was filmed in Arco, Idaho, that it was all spam on a can and for satellite TV. And uh, he goes, we got our own spaceman right here. So I literally get my nickname because of a horny third baseman. <laughs> and, and, hey, I got to ask you now, almost 50 years on down the line, did did, did we really go to the moon or not? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you, know you know, I mean, I believe we've left stuff up there and everything else. And, uh, I mean, if we did it was a miracle and if we didn't it's even more of a miracle you know <laughs> but uh, the funny thing is what does it get us it doesn't get us anything more than a, a big military system 
You know, and it's who Alexander Great said, whoever controls the high ground controls the universe. And so it goes all the way back to Aristotle, you know, Socrates, and only, uh, you know, it's amazing. Socrates said luck is, or Aristotle said luck is when the arrow hits the guy next to you. <laughs> I love that one. Well, let me ask you about 79, because you had quite a fine year for Montreal in 79. You threw 222 innings for them, won 16 games, 304 earned run average, uh, just a terrific season. How different in those days were the two leagues? Because now, of course, we've got the same umpires working you know, around both leagues. But in those days, I mean, you really did have two separate leagues. And it's, when I grew up as a kid, they always talked about how the strike zones were, were different and, and, and so forth. Uh, what was that experience like after, after being an American leaguer for uh, 10 years, moving over to the National League, seeing different cities, seeing different ballparks, and dealing with different umpires? It was heaven. It was the best experience. You know, I go there, and I remember my first game against Krukot and the Cubs. First ball I throw, Harry Wendell says behind the plate. First pitch I throw is right down the middle, and he raises, he goes ball one and looks up at me. I smile at him. Carter throws me back the ball, and I go into my windup, and I throw another sinker right down the middle. I get a ground ball to short. And Harry Wendelstead realized that he was not going to be an influence in this ball game. And the word got around, and every National League umpire loved me because I threw fast. I was like Jim Cott. I worked fast, changed speeds, knew what I was doing, and they all got to the bar in Montreal or the titty bar a lot faster than normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you tend to develop a, a, a good working relationship with that kind of a left-hander. I have a good working relationship <laughs> with every umpire that I've ever had, you know, even the one who threw me out of the ball game in Hol Holcomb Stadium, who was terrible. But he was deaf, you know. I didn't know he couldn't hear. So I ended up getting to his face. He didn't or never heard my negative comments, but he could sure read lips, and he threw me out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now i got to ask you about my, my friend Ellis Valentine. Anytime I talk to one of Ellis's teammates, I always want to get a story uh, about their impressions of that throwing arm of his. You had a you had a you had a cannon behind you in right field there in Montreal. Yeah, when he went to the All Star game, I remember he threw someone out at home plate, and he just he had the best arm I ever saw outside of Reggie Smith. Reggie Smith, I think, had a better arm. I think Reggie Smith was the greatest athlete I ever played with in my life, and. Uh, he just he just had a bad temperament and couldn't control it there for a while and now he's he and I have patched things up and we're pretty close. Roy White, him and uh oh another pitcher. It was Pete Varney and uh Ron Woods, Ronnie Woods, they're all from the same high school over there in South Central in Crenshaw. And uh what athlete. I saw Valentine had a good arm, but I saw Reggie Smith and Carl Ustremski during a rain delay and Rick Ustremski took a ball, got out of the dugout, ran to the first baseline, and threw it high off the left field wall, you know, showing his arm. Smith grabbed the ball out of the umpire's, you know, the bucket right there, didn't run to the line, stood on the dirt by the dugout, and threw it over the screen into Kenmore Square. Whoa. Whoa, what an arm. 
You know, but Valentine had a good arm. Well, s- s- speaking of that good memory of yours, I, I know people want to ask you, you know, what's the longest home run you ever gave up or whatever. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a different question. What's the longest home run you ever saw in person? Jackson, All Star game. Jackson hit the ball off of uh, Ellis or Doc Ellis. That's the, the the hardest hit ball I ever seen was that ball. You were there. That, yeah. Okay. That that game. But here's another one. I was, I was at. I throwed to Dimitri Young about four years ago in the Hall of Fame game down there. Dimitri had just gotten out of the big leagues, and at Cooperstown, there's a house in left field over the fence. The porch is about three oh five. There's a few stands, the scoreboard. Then there's a house. He hit it over the first house and hit the second house. <laughs> That's the longest home run I ever gave up in my life, and it was a bomb. <laughs> Ricky, well, I'll tell you, Frank Howard hit one off me in RFK Stadium on a changeup, and he hit that ball off his front foot by my ear, and it hit the long jeans clock at 11 o'clock right behind my head. Upper deck. Unbelievable. Well, Frank Howard, that had to be... That had to be an experience just standing 60 feet and 6 inches from him. He was a beast of a man. It was the most scariest thing in the history of baseball. Especially if you made him a... Because he could hit the ball up the middle. You know, I would throw him sinkers down and in and say, let him kill Rico Petroselli. But, uh, <laughs> hey, where were you sitting at Tiger Stadium uh, the night that Reggie hit it off the Transformer? I didn't have a really good seat. I was back in the right field corner back there and stuff. And, uh, you know, I saw it go up. I saw it hit up there, but barely. It it was, I'd never seen a ball with that trajectory go that far. All right. Talk to me about uh, Bowie Kuhn because, you know, 1980, they did a feature story on you in High Times Magazine. And I know that that's, not the not the only time that uh, that you've been featured in High Times magazine, but at the time, it was considered pretty scandalous. You you opened up some about uh, marijuana usage and so forth, and the commissioner was just just aghast and, and fined you fined you two hundred and fifty dollars. I still have the letter from the commissioner <laughs> on his heading, signed Bowie Kuhn. And the letter says, we are finding you $250 for using marijuana as a condiment. <laughs> On your pancakes, you know. On my pancakes, because that's what I said. Because he was going to kick me out of baseball for smoking it. But nowhere in the article did I say I smoked it. I said I used it. So that's how I got around it. I got around it with through the semantics, uh, the legalese and stuff, that he is so dumb. And, uh, I mean... Look what he did with Pasquale Perez, and look what he did with everybody else. The guy is 0-10 in lawsuits against Marvin Miller, and Marvin Miller's not in the Hall of Fame, but he's in the Hall of Fame. What's wrong with baseball? Yeah, that's that's a complete miscarriage of baseball justice. Yes, it is. No question. That's why we're in the predicament we're in. These people turn a blind eye to everything in their face just for the economic reality that they can make more money. They're not out to help the game of baseball or preserve the game of baseball. There are no Bart Giamatti's out there anymore. There's only yes men and people like that. I believe the new commissioner is actually a really good guy, a really smart guy, and I hope 
And the only way I'll know that is when the Expos have a baseball team. Then I know that baseball is getting better. Amen to that. I, and and I and I want to get your opinion on the state of the game today as we as we come down the stretch here. You know, this is the first season in history, as I understand it, where there are going to be more strikeouts at the conclusion of the season than base hits. Um, coming back around again to the game today, the state of the game today, and 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 just the aesthetics of it, the pleasure of going to the ballpark. We've is that we alluded to earlier. We already know that there's going to be a parade of relief pitchers most days, and now we've got more strikeouts than base hits. I mean, you're a guy who was a very successful major league pitch, pitcher for uh, for many years, and you averaged 3.3 strikeouts per nine innings for for your career. Now, Isn't that amazing? It's the game has changed so much just in the course of <laughs> the the last 20, 30, 40 years. It's it, you know, it it changes so gradually that, that you don't realize it, but one day you you wake up and you know, guys that are striking out seven and a half batters per nine innings are below league average now. What do you think when you watch a 2018 baseball game? I still love the game. I still love to see a, uh, a well-played game. I like to see how I, I'm amazed at how good they are, how good Mookie Betts is, how good Martinez is with his yoga breath and cleansing and the way the Red Sox are playing. And I still love the game, but I know that the end is near because of the fact that they don't put the ball in play except every 4.5 minutes. And that is what's that's why when you go to a little league field and you look in the outfield, there's holes dug in center field, right field, and left field <laughs> by nervous little nine, ten-year-olds that aren't getting to play, and all they're doing is tearing up the grass, and that is what's wrong with baseball. The final word I'll say is we're over-specialized, we're overplayed, and we're over here. That's like World War One when the British complained about the doughboys. They're oversexed. They're overpaid and they're over here. <laughs> if I can make you the commissioner for a day, you can change as much or as little as you want. What what would be job one or job one and two for you to try and restore baseball back? And a designated hitter. I banned aluminum bats in Little League. You know, I banned all the body armor they put on. I play the game the way it used to be played. You need what baseball needs is more bad ball hitters. Coming up, September 3rd, Expos Day in Ottawa, Ontario. There's going to be a host of former Expo stars that, that are going to be there, including my guest today, Olakam Boyd pitching, Bill Spaceman Lee at first base, and who knows, if you're lucky, maybe he'll come out and, and, and mop up for an inning or two. You can check it all out at ottawachampions.com. Bill Lee... What a thrill. Great pleasure to have you on the podcast. I, I think now, officially, the Super 70 Sports Podcast has earned its name because uh, w without the blessing of Bill Lee, I'm not sure that you have your uh, 1970s uh, credibles. Well, I'll tell you what. You run that thing, you edit it, you make a book out of it, you sell it because that's how to save baseball. All right. Thank you, my friend. and Thank you. Enjoy Expos Day. Thank you for the opportunity. The one and only spaceman, Bill Lee, still going strong, still playing baseball, 
And who knows, maybe if they're lucky, the folks that are out in Ottawa on September 3rd, coming up, Expos Day, maybe they'll get to see him pitch an inning. He's got to get that left arm healthy because at age 71, he ain't done yet. So until we do this thing again, whenever that may be, this is Ricky Cobb urging you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Thank you.